Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Simon Reynolds' book, Energy Flash A Journey Through Rave Music and Dance Culture, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Nate and Ryan discuss trip-hop and how the 1990s Bristol sound emerged from a city not much known for innovative music until the 1980s. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Or should I say techno roll, which means we're discussing Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and once again, joined by Ryan Harkness to continue our journey. Today, we're going to cover the chapter called Sounds of Paranoia, Trip Hop, Tricky, and Pre-Millennium Tension. And sadly, we had to fire Simon for this episode. I had to call in Phil Johnson, author of Straight Out of Bristol, Massive Attack, Portishead, Tricky, and the Roots of Trip Hop, to help me. Unfortunately, Phil's not here on the show, but I mean, I read his book. So, you Ryan, read the whole book? I read the whole book. I read the whole book. It's not a very long book. It's like a quickie that came out in 1998 to explain this mysterious Bristol sound that had all the uh, punters. I don't even know if it was the punters that were talking. Had all the rock fans talking about Trip Hop? I mean, it, it it definitely made a made a dent in uh, in mainstream culture in the UK, and it's one of those interesting things where trip hop is both something very specific, but also became something that was uh, kind of amalgamated into everything else. So it's like we're trying to talk about trip hop, but then it kind of moves one way or another. It turns into down tempo. I mean, everything that kind of comes after glitch hop and stuff like that has has a lot of trip hop elements, but you can't call it trip hop anymore. So it's a very weird specific kind of it, it, it's kind of like electronica the the label being that packaged 90s sound and trip hop is also like a kind of a, a photo of a specific sound that came from bristol and hit the charts and then from there it was off to the races everybody just took it pulled it apart uh, and just integrated into everything else and and now it's just everywhere in one form or another I would even argue that a lot of the SoundCloud SoundCloud rap we've heard in the 2010s is heavily influenced by trip hop. People like Lil Peep and Lil Xan and Extension or however you say his name um, 
totally sound like they listen to a lot of Tricky or, or listen to people who listen to Tricky. And also the detective work on this one, because Reynolds, Reynolds' chapter is fine. He, he's basically trying to discuss the impact of trip hop on the dance music scene circa 95, 96, kind of in the wake of Jungle, which is when Tricky's album came out, when Portishead uh, went platinum, I think triple platinum in the UK, which is only about 900,000 records, but it's still a, a big deal. And they went platinum in the States too. So he's kind of trying to describe their impact. But it left me with a ton of questions, not really knowing where it came from. So the uh, Straight Outta Bristol book I found to be really handy, plus a bunch of documentaries. And also got to the – I don't know that I got to the root of acid jazz, but acid jazz comes into this, which is one of those things that was such a great marketing term, never really had an exact meaning. And now I know it kind of means the brand-new heavies in Jamiroquai – but it also means things like a man called Adam that I had thought was Balearic. You know? Well, I mean, the problem with some of these terminologies is if they if they don't catch on, they and they don't if they don't attach themselves to a, a very specific sound, then uh, then it all just gets a bit fuzzy, doesn't it? Yes, 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 it does. And so this is us trying to untangle some great big fuzzies. But let's go back and let's go to Bristol in the 80s. Now, Bristol is another one. Being a Yank, I wasn't quite clear what the difference was between Bristol and Brighton, the beach town, and and Brixton, the, the, the London ghetto immortalized in the Clash song, The Guns of Brixton, and subject to many riots in the 80s. And Bristol had a, their own riot, maybe the first riot of the Thatcher area, era, the St. Paul riots of 1980, which ironically gave the black community in Bristol a little bit of breathing space because apparently even though there was a large Jamaican community there, it's a, it's a community on the west side of, of Britain, a port town, one of the big slaving ports in Liverpool or the big British ports that, that got you know, super wealthy in the hideous and evil slave trade and had a big Jamaican community. But in the 60s and 70s, the police there would just confiscate the equipment. So it was hard to get a scene going when anytime you take it down to the street and start playing, the, the cops come and take your gear. But after the St. Paul riots, um, suddenly they had a little bit more space. So Bristol is really key. And the funny thing about Bristol, this is a town, I mean, one of the reasons I didn't know where it was, was it's one of the few British cities of any size that did not have a major beat or rock group or blues revival band or heavy metal band in the 70s or 60s. So punching way below its weight culturally. And then suddenly in the 80s, and especially in the 90s, it becomes this uh, regional cultural heavyweight. So pretty interesting story. Yeah, and it also ends up having kind of a distinctive sound. Everything coming out of Bristol is is jazzier. It's a little bit slower. It's a little bit weirder. And uh, that's pretty cool, too. Like, I, I love regions that end up kind of having having their own sound. And I think it, you know, comes out of uh, the cultural the cultural elements of the city as well as, uh, you know, like they, they were very uh, anti-government compared to to other places. You, you read up on the Bristol scene and everybody was kind of political and there was a whole bunch of uh, new sheets and uh, zines and everything else like that fighting the power. So a real punk ethos, which kind of feeds into, I guess, the post-punk that then happens. Yeah. And post-punk becomes a really big part of the story. This is 
probably the biggest impact by a specific post-punk group on the dance scenes of the 80s and 90s. And I'm talking about the pop group, <clears throat> which is one of these groups. What, what, what pop group? The pop group. I know, the, but what are they called? The, exactly. The, it's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's like who's on first routine. A group with the somewhat dubious name of the pop group led by a guy named Mark Stewart. And this is a group I had slept on, and I was a big fan of – you know, post 80s post-punk PIL and Joy Division and all that stuff. And I thought I knew all about it. But when I read Simon Reynolds' other book about post-punk, um, which I think is called Rip It Up and Start Again, my memory has been smoked. Um, he really talks about the pop group a lot. And at first I was like, well, what's the big deal here? But now I understand much more so because they're super influential on this Bristol scene. They were one of these groups, I would compare them with the Slits, which was an all-female group out of London that started as a punk group and then got very heavily dub-influenced and reggae-style. And so the pop group is their first album. It, it's great. It took me a long time to get into, but it's super dub-influenced, way on beyond what PIL and Joy Division or the birthday party or anybody were doing at that time. And this guy, Mark Stewart, was just this cultural maven who first does that with a pop group. Then he starts recording with legit dub musicians, then he gets into hip hop really early on and he hooks up with the band that played the disco backing on uh, the Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight and he brings them to Bristol. So Bristol scene, it already has a big Jamaican local scene, you know, with the sound systems and the reggae and the, and the dub and the lovers rock and all that stuff. He brings the hip hop in there. So Bristol gets into hip hop way, way early. And he then collaborates um, with Smith and Mighty and all these other groups. So just a totally big influence. And he also comes in and does press for Portishead informally when they don't want to talk to the press. So it's it's pretty good symbiotic relationship. Yeah, you, you'll see Mark Stewart's name pop up over and over and over again. Smith and Mighty is one of these connector. Uh, this is a producer duo uh, that kind of got locked up in a bad uh, music contract. So they were never they're not as well known as they should be. Uh, but they were a big connector group in Bristol and and everybody kind of went through them. And, and Mark Stewart kind of popped up and uh, stole a Smith and Mighty song and also uh, introduced Smith and Mighty to Tricky and during an impromptu live performance Smith and Mighty were playing a song and then Mark Stewart just pushes Tricky up on the stage to rap over it so it's one of those one of those guys where if you if you look deep enough into the Bristol scene you're just going to see Mark Stewart pop up do this connect these people pop back out but uh, you know you need these connectors to 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 you know have a, a scene like a brain all the synapses firing and connecting to each other absolutely and let's hear our first song and this is another one of the key groups that never made it as big as they should have, um, although several of the members go on to form Massive Attack. And this is the Wild Bunch, which was a sound system crew from Bristol. This is their version of Backrack and David's Walk On By from 1985. And it's considered a big, big deal because it's the first time that Lover's Rock vocals, which is a spinoff of reggae, late 70s, early 80s style of reggae, uh, are combined with hip-hop beats. So this is the Wild Bunch, Walk On By, 1985, straight out of Bristol.
And that was The Wild Bunch with Walk On By, the Backrack David classic made famous by Dionne Warwick in the 60s, uh, getting uh, the full-on 80s treatment, state-of-the-art uh, 80s pop right there. And before we get into the, the Wild Bunch and that whole thing, there's another post-punk figure, although maybe she's kind of a hip house figure. I'm not sure because she comes to her most pop, her biggest pop popularity in the late 80s. I'm talking about Nina Cherry, who started out one of the second generation members of the slits. Then she comes to Bristol and she's in a, in a group called Rip, Rig and Panic as a backup singer. She's also a DJ on West London's pirate radio station, the Dread Broadcasting Corp, which played dub. Then she has a big hit in 1989 with Buffalo Stance. And this whole Buffalo thing becomes a big style. The magazine, The Face, is all about it. Um, and both 3D and Mushroom, who are going to be who are members of the Wild Bunch and then are going to become members of Massive Attack, contribute to her album, co-wrote the song Manchild, 3D did. She's also married to a guy named Cameron McVeigh. And I got really dorked out when I stumbled across this because McVeigh, who becomes the manager and co-producer for Massive Attack, and also Nina Cherry's manager and producer. I don't know if he's her manager, but definitely her producer. He was in a group called Morgan McVeigh that had one of the few flop singles produced by our old friends Stock Aikman and Waterman, the guys who popularized the high energy sound. And who basically were responsible for like half the hits of the 80s, that weird upbeat, never going to give you up sound. Exactly. The, the whole Rick Astley sound, uh, the legendary Stock Aikman, Waterman. And so he had a single there, Looking Good Drive, Diving, which had a Wild Bunch remix on the B-side. That was a flop, but he uh, he survived just fine and became a producer and becomes a very important figure in our story. So I just love that all these connections, you know, we're, we're getting everything connected. And the other thing about Bristol was not only did they have a big black community, um, and then they had a little bit of breathing space after the riots in 1980, they also had an integrated club called the Dugout Club that wasn't in St. Paul's. It was in the white part of town. It was in Clifton, which apparently adjoins St. Paul's. But it was a club that broke with the English custom of having you know a limit on how many black men could be at the club, et cetera. And so they were open to everybody. They let black kids in. They let white kids came in. It just became a crossroads. And so they play a lot of punk and new wave, but also reggae and dub. And then when Mark Stewart brings the hip hop, it's all over that. And so you get people like Miles Johnson, who's a black kid from the area, and then Nellie Hooper, who's a white kid from the area, and they form a new wave band in the early 80s. And that morphs into a sound system that becomes the Wild Bunch. They get a guy named Grant Marshall, who becomes more famous as Daddy G in Massive Attack. They're the DJs. They start recruiting these MCs, including, and I know I'm going to say this wrong. I even I even did the YouTube trick of looking up how to pronounce his name, and I've already forgotten. Robert Del Naja, is that? Robert, I'll just call him 3D. Robert yeah. Naja. Naja. Or yes. you just call him Banksy. Banksy. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. He did. That's another figure that we got to bring up because because 3D comes out of the same Bristol graffiti scene as the mysterious and oh so lucrative uh, graffiti artist Banksy. 
as you say. So he's a kid of Italian uh, English descent. And you've also got Andrew Voles, who becomes known as Mushroom in Massive Attack, and another guy named Claude Williams, who um, unfortunately uh, ends up in, in prison. His his follow-up group to The Wild Bunch was less yeah. successful. And I think you missed out on Nellie Hooper, who's important I, not for what I, he did with the, with the Wild Bunch, but he kind of— I did mention him. I said the white kid Nellie Hooper when I talked uh, about Miles Johnson. So you, <laughs> you thought you had me, but you didn't. But yeah, go ahead and tell us why Nellie Hooper matters. Uh, I mean, I, uh, Nellie Hooper went out there and uh, did what a lot of the other members of the group weren't willing to do. Like, uh, you know, I listened to interviews with Tricky and Tricky was talking about once Massive Attack kind of uh, started getting big, the sound got big and he had all these offers to go out and remix Madonna and stuff like that. And he said, hell no. Nellie Hooper, on the other hand, said, hell yes. So <laughs> Nellie Hooper is out there uh, remixing and producing a whole bunch of big label people. He did uh, Bjork's uh, debut album. Uh, and that sound is, to me, really the, the tip top. I like Massive Attack. Mezzanine was one of those uh, influential albums in my life. But uh, but Bjork and, and those tracks, that was just something that, you know, when you've been listening to much music and, and hearing all this kind of pseudo alternative kind of pablum, and then you hear uh, human behavior, you're like, what the hell is going on here? And that was Nellie Hooper and Bjork, yes. obviously, but Nellie Hooper taking care of the production on it, which is, I think, one of the one of the key parts. Absolutely. And he was also a full on member of Soul to Soul. But that's after he quits the Wild Bunch. And let's run through their story because it's, it's another one of these kind of frustrating ones. And Miles Johnson is a big, big deal. He was kind of the founder of the Wild Bunch. And he's the guy who had the record collection. And then Nellie Hooper would be the selector. And this is a way that they divvy up the duties uh, for DJing in Jamaica is that one guy has a record collection, but another guy knows when to play what record and he becomes the selector. So Johnson was the guy who, I guess, set the, the, the boundaries. Here's what we are. Here's what's in the, in the crates. And then Nellie Hooper was like, here's how we're going to play the cards that we have in our hands. And so, but they they come out. They do um, some some mixes for Nina Chair and others. They do um, these Backrack David songs. Uh, Look of Love. They also do with a, a singer named Shara Nelson, who goes on to become the singer on the first Massive Attack album, Blue Blue Lines. Um, Look of Love is the one, yeah, that combines lovers rock and hip hop. They also do another one, Tearing Down the Avenue, 1985. They get big enough to get an offer to go to Japan. That's where everything goes wrong. 3D quits abruptly during the tour. They get back after the rest of them finish the tour. They get back to the UK and fall apart. Some of them go to London, pursue their major label record business deals. That's uh, and Miles Johnson basically stays in Japan, moves back and forth between New York and Japan, and and gets into the fashion industry and import export and different things. And he's in a lot of the documentaries about the Bristol Sound, but he. I feel like never fulfilled his full potential, although they do. There is a Wild Bunch album that I've ordered and haven't received that you have to track down on CD. Nelly goes on to join Soul to Soul, which is another one of these sound system type groups that, in my experience, like I said before, when they came up, they were just a pop thing, and I didn't know where they came from or had any idea of their background. And now I know even more that they had a Bristol connection as well. Yeah, and Soul to Soul, important to note that they were kind of the progenitors of of the breakbeat sound that ended up, you know, being bastardized into breakbeat hardcore. People were playing the Soul to Soul records sped way up and Soul to Soul got, uh, yeah, uh, so Soul to Soul kind of being one of those one of those early influences that that really, uh, when it comes to rave history, Soul to Soul played a big part, even though they don't get, you know, they had their own thing going on as well. 
Yeah, they weren't. They didn't come out of the rave scene, but they definitely impacted the rave scene in a big way. And so it's time to cue our next song. And this is Massive Attract, Safe From Harm. And why did you pick this particular one? I just felt like uh, it was a it's the first album on the Blue Lines. Uh, it's the first song in the Blue Lines album. And it just hits you in the face with what it is. The, the video, I felt, uh, gives you uh, such, such a, a, an interesting view of the world that they come from in Bristol. And a lot of the Massive Attack, the early album videos, I feel kind of stick Bristol culture right in your face because Massive Attack was just as much a, uh, you know, they were they were more than just about music. They were they were about uh, Bristol underground culture, and they were about uh, you know uh, graffiti, and they were about uh, you know protest. They were about a whole bunch of things, and I feel like that first album, that first song, just hits you right in the face, and it just gives you uh, the perfect embodiment of what trip hop was. All right, Massive Attack, safe from harm. Massive Attack, Safe From Harm, first song on their first album, Blue Lines, which, yeah, it was a big breakthrough. But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about Smith and Mighty, who kind of come between The Wild Bunch and Massive Attack. They put out um, a couple of – they also do remix versions of Backrack David songs that were famous, made famous by Dionne Warwick. They did Anyone Who Had a Heart and Walk On, uh, which is a version of Walk On By, both of those in 1988. Then they produced Wishing on a Star for a rap crew called the Fresh Four coming out of Bristol. That one made the charts in Britain. Gets them a deal with Polygram. They could have had a deal with Virgin, but they turned that down because they didn't like Richard Branson's politics, although they're pretty inarticulate when asked what it was exactly about Richard Branson's politics I didn't like. I get it. He's a billionaire. I don't like his politics either, but um, they end up signing with Polygram. They cut an album called Bases Maternal. Aimed for release in 1990, it's held back, and then they are trapped in record company hell for five years. They can't release the album. Polygram won't release it. They won't let him release it anywhere else. They do produce or co-produce an album by a singer named Carlton. The call is strong in 1990. They get to put out an EP called The Stepper's Delight in 1992 that some people call a proto-jungle EP. But Bass's Maternal doesn't come out until 1995, and it's a really interesting album, and I definitely – the kind of thing that leaves you with a lot of questions like, what if that had come out on Virgin in 1989? I bet it would have had an impact, but we'll never know. You know, it's kind of depressing that, that, that all that happened and they never got bigger. They don't seem too bitter about the whole situation, but they also had they, – they were kind of like four hero in a way uh, where they, they had a, a community center approach to, to studio music. So even if they weren't releasing a bunch of stuff, they were in the studio all the time. The studio was open to anybody who was interested in coming in and working with them. And you have a lot of the uh, early jungle guys like DJ Die, Crust, Roni Size – they were all all in there with Smith and Mighty, learning the ropes with these guys who are, you know, impeccable producers. And, uh, and so I think that, you know, they have 
a huge influence on, on the sound and how and the blueprint for what the Bristol sound came out to be. And just because, you know, anybody kind of coming up could go through and work with them and figure it all out and maybe learn not to sign with Polygram. <laughs> maybe so. And then so now we come to Massive Attack. So a couple of the guys went to London. One of the guys went to New York and, and Japan, but that left 3D and Mushroom and Daddy G and Tricky behind, and they end up putting some tracks together and getting the attention of Cameron McVeigh, Nina Cherry's husband, um, who becomes their manager, gets him an album deal, and they and they put together Blue Lines. And it's one of these things you get the feeling. Like they definitely needed management. Like this is a band that could have sat around smoking spliffs and mixing tracks and never really finishing anything without somebody pushing them and spurring them on. I think they were living in Nina Cherry's house for a while. And you really get the feeling that Carlton McCarthy, Cameron McVeigh, sorry, carried them across uh, the finish line. They also bring in vocalists, um, Sharon Nelson and Horace Andy. And Carlton McCarthy, Tricky comes in as, as a rapper, of course, and 3D also raps. So yeah. One of these things where total outsiders from a very marginal peripheral city who put together an album that really spoke to people. It only sold a couple hundred thousand copies in the States, but still for a totally new sound to do that at a time when, you know, native born American dance music like house music and, and techno was basically dying on the vine around this time. So it's, it's I think, an absolute landmark album for the 90s and it's one that even my dusty old rocker ass somehow i must have read a review in spin or something and, and got a hold of it and just dug it you know I, I was this is one of the few scenes where i was hip to or at least picking up the albums and listening to them when they came out so yeah i was more of a of a mezzanine era fan and uh but you gotta the, the thing about blue lines is that it, it it fed into dance culture's desire for respectability and finally they had this and, and i mean you know you listen to these interviews and they talk about blue lines as being this this dance album and you're like no but i mean the way that they looked at it was that this this was you know the these people represented electronic music and this here is a legitimate artistic album we are now serious take us seriously and and in that regard i mean it's it's amazing yeah a big big deal uh, reynolds says it's a landmark in uk club culture equivalent to miles davis's kind of blue which is one of the biggest and, and best-selling jazz albums of all time so that's pretty heady praise he says they combined prog rock a la Pink Floyd, post-punk a la PIL, jazz fusion a la Herbie Hancock, and symphonic soul a la Isaac Hayes into this mix. And it's one of these, also one of these deals where they put out the album, it's incredibly well-received, it's got a beachhead in the States, they get offers to tour, they go over there first as a sound system with rappers, which people were just not ready for in the States. That tour goes down in flames, um, you know, even somebody like Fatboy Slim, seven, eight years later, is going to have a lot of resistance when he shows up to play club gigs in the States and he's, he's a DJ with the sound system. These guys were a full hip hop crew, but they weren't being marketed to hip hop audiences and they weren't coming through hip hop channels. So people in the States were just scratching their head. Then they put a band together and, and tour again later. But in the meantime, the band kind of falls apart. Um, Sharon Nelson quits and has a very successful solo career as an R&B singer. 
tricky um and we'll come back to him he he starts doing some tracks finds the vocals on his own massive attack rejects um he moves on we'll come back to tricky and it takes them like three or four years to get their follow-up album out and then they dredge up tracy thorne from um everything but the girl which uh, 80s pop band so another another classic connection and the protection album comes out in 94 and mezzanine i want to say is 96 but, 98 or 99 yeah 98 yeah, 98 98 good good yeah so they they you know continue this body of work and there's also all kinds of intrigue when you get down to the the final three guys a uh, mushroom ends up quitting around the turn of the millennium um can't deal with 3d anymore and but they've they've continued on into the 21st century so so Massive Attack uh, 3D was kind of like the uh, Trent Reznor of the group where he'll let other people be in the group. But, you know, one member of the group is uh, the, really the guy that runs the whole thing. So people are kind of coming. People are going. 3D is the main guy behind it. And, uh, you know, it's a good thing because all of those other talented artists needed their own space to be able to go their own, in their own direction. So, you know, it's not a bad thing that the Wild Bunch broke up because most of those guys went and did interesting things. Tricky out going and doing his own thing as well mushroom another one of those guys that you know uh, could have maybe done more but you know for what what he contributed uh through massive attack was was definitely you know worthy of his place in history so absolutely and so let's take a quick break from our sponsors when we come back we're going to solve the mystery of what was acid jazz exactly and so this is a question i've had for a long time and i'm sure many others who bothered with it have too. like what exactly was acid jazz it was a term that came out in the wake of acid house becoming such a huge pop phenomenon in britain it probably had as much success in the states as it had in the uk because it became the sort of blanket cover for any kind of 70s soul or jazz or smooth jazz well smooth jazz is the wrong term forgive me got the kenny g documentary on my mind but any any kind of retro sound harkening back to classic soul or funk or mellow jazz from the 60s and 70s and so kind of had an alliance with the native tongues movement and hip-hop in the states and looking into it because reynolds doesn't give a lot of info on it but he does bring it in he talks about the mo wax label um, but he oddly skips over the acid jazz label, which is um, kind of the fountainhead of this whole thing. And of course, it comes out of our old nemesis, the rare groove and jazz funk scene. Yeah, they're finally doing something new. And uh, so there's some new life being breathed into it by new artists that are introducing new elements to it and some freshness to it. And, you know, uh, so like a bit of celebrity and some star gravitas like Jamiroquai, exactly what it needed to kind of revitalize and move Yep, move forward. And, you know, it's Reynolds calls it a repost to rave culture, a Luddite retreat, which maybe is a little harsh, but it's it's a marijuana scene. It's not an ecstasy scene. They, you know, it started, Rare Groove came out of the Cat in the Hat Club in London or the Cat in the Hat Night at, the, I can't remember what club it was in London, but there was another club in Camden called Dingwalls that becomes the hub of acid jazz, which they were originally doing rare groove and jazz funk stuff. And then just as a joke, very early on in the acid movement, um, put the term acid jazz on a poster and it just immediately caught on. They quickly form a record label. Um, it got Gilles Peterson, a French DJ who was a big part of that scene forms this label acid jazz in 1987. So pretty early on. And 
they put out these compilations, the Totally Wired compilations, that kind of sum up their aesthetic, which is everything from like funk to soul jazz to um, some reggae and dub and, and tons of rare groove and kind of jazz funk stuff. So it's, it's a really eclectic thing. But it comes into our story with a group called A Man Called Adam, which is Sally Rogers and Steve Jones, and they're actual DJs. And a lot of times you hear them thrown in as Balearic DJs. They're in a documentary about one of the early trips to Ibiza that's organized as a, as a you know package tour for music fans. Um, and they do more what you would imagine acid jazz would be, which is house-informed producers using sampling technology to sample some of those old records and get those old acoustic bass sounds and those sweet Jimmy Smith organ sounds and stuff like that. But the label also put out actual bands like Brand New Heavies and Jamiroquai, which are just straight-up R&B retro groups, although the Brand New Heavies then quickly formed these alliances with like Tribe Called Quest and Gangstar and other uh, American hip-hop groups and became much more interesting in a novel as they go on. They become much more than a than a you know old f- f- fogey band playing playing R and B. Yeah, um, I mean when when it comes to the DJs kind of making making this more Balearic jazzy sound. I mean uh, the whole point of Balearic as a as a DJing style was to open yourself up and to grab as much as you could. And if it had that four four beat and it mixed in to your other records, you could put it in there. So this here was a jazzy kind of element to it that fit into all these sets and kind of became its own little uh, its own little. You could produce it and you knew the DJs would play it. There'd be a demand for it. And so you find often these little boutique labels that kind of pop up that kind of cater to that. And I feel like that's kind of where those guys fell in. Yeah, absolutely. And there's also a label called Ninja Tune that was uh, f- founded by um, Cold Cut, which has been one of those uh, collage record making groups along with like Mars uh, and some of the others. Uh, this, my text editor changed Cold Cut to Conduct. So I'm glad I actually remember the name this time. <laughs> But uh, yes, my weekly battle with the text editor. But they had a bunch of stuff like DJ Food and Funky Porcini and the Herbalizer. Reynolds heaps a bit of scorn on their product. Um, maybe it's deserved, maybe it's not. I can't, not qualified to comment. But um, part of the scene, people were listening to him, especially in chill out rooms. And then the other label was Mo Wax, which um, James Lavelle and Steve Finnan um formed and Reynolds calls it basically acid jazz gone digital, which like we said, a man called Adam was. So there were some digital acts on acid jazz, but Mowax is more along those lines. And um they were near and dear to my heart because they put out Cool Keith, who had been one of the ultra mega MCs and then becomes this totally eccentric avant-garde art hip hop producer in the late nineties doing uh Dr. Octagon Ecologist and other stuff. They also did DJ Shadow, which I didn't realize. I knew his introducing album in 1996, but which was like you know this landmark first sample album, kind of the hip hop equivalent of Intelligent Techno or something, where it's this album oriented sit down music. There's no rapping. It. He's a white guy from Davis, California, hooking up with this London label, and he was never really accepted by the hip hop scene in the States. I think he was accepted by his local hip hop scenes and the California hip hop scene, but 
the broader hip hop. Yeah, this is this scene. is where it ties in more to the dance scene is because they didn't really get any respect in the in the more mainstream hip hop scene which was very commercial so it had an aesthetic that 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 needed to be followed because that was the template. So guys like DJ Shadow didn't really fit into it while in the UK where they have no problem with a with a kind of geeky white guy doing stuff. Hey, that's fine by them. Yeah, and so singles like In Flux in 1993 and then Lost and Found and What Does Your Soul Look Like, those were hitting the dance market, the club the club scene in Britain through this whole time. So at first when he started talking about DJ Shadow, he being Reynolds in this chapter, I was like, wait a minute, where does this come from? Because I knew it was com- from California. I did not know that he had been on the Mo Wax label. I didn't even know that like that that what label cool Keith was on. I just knew I liked those albums and bought them. But so, you know, filled in another piece of the puzzle here. And so DJ shadow shadow definitely fits into our narrative and then comes into his own in the trip hop era. Cause his album comes out in the wake of tricky's album and was definitely sold and reviewed and discussed in the same places as the other trip hop stuff. Yeah, I think Mo Wax is pretty much the the most exciting discovery of this whole chapter. I kind of I did things a bit wrong this time. I was listening I was listening to all this music at the gym, which is not when you should be listening to trip hop. It does not help you <laughs> pump up or 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 cardio out. So and then I kind of you know you get to the part in the chapter where uh, where Simon Reynolds really goes into a bit of a in, into a bit of a, a very deep uh, rumination on the the marijuana element of the whole thing. I'm like oh here we go. And then on on uh, Monday, I started smoking weed every night and, and going through, and Mo Wax was <laughs> particularly enjoyable to dig through as far as discovery goes. Yeah, there's a reason they call this the blunt beats genre. So yes, your your mileage may vary, but I can't deny I've also enjoyed it with the same enhancement. Let's go ahead and hear DJ Shadow. This is In Flux, a Mo Wax release from 1993. The naked black, white. was DJ Shadows in Flux, which was a Mo Wax release, part of the Blunt Beats vibe that was was um, uh, definitely a factor in the UK dance club scene. And that brings us to our next trip hop group. And this this was a group founded by a guy, Jeff Barrow, who had been an engineer on the Massive Attack Blue Lines album, although sometimes Tricky and others who want to trash him will say he was the T-boy. Uh, he plugged in some some machines, you know, uh, but he worked on the album and he's gone on to do uh, amazing stuff. And, and most of that has been forming this group with uh, a singer he met named Beth Gibbons. And this is another weird thing. There was Thatcher didn't have a lot of social programs, but one of the social programs she had was a thing to help people start their own companies, because what could be more neoliberal than being an entrepreneur? And so Jeff Farrell went down to check this out, and he's sort of made himself a music company for the purposes of this handout. And he meets someone down there who says she's a singer. That's Beth Gibbons. And they check each other's stuff out, and he's really taken by her songs. She's kind of... Kind of an indie pop singer, although indie pop 
as such wasn't really a known phenomenon yet. Though I guess it was alternative rock would have been um, where she fit in, sort of related to something like cowboy junkies or that kind of, you know, sexy, gravelly voice, mysterious female singer. But she also kind of came out of the French chanson tradition of Edith Piaf and um, Serge Gainsbourg and, and all that kind of, you know, the brooding cigarette smoked filled uh, jazz singer. He's not quite jazz, but that's that's what chanson is. And they get together and they find Adrian Utley, who's actually one of the top jazz guitarists in Britain. And, I've, you know, people make fun of the jazz scene in Britain. And I've sat through some pretty bad British jazz bands uh, before. Um, I saw McCoy Tyner or Elvin Jones. I saw one of the Coltrane, um, original Coltrane quartet guys and Ronnie Scott's in London in the late nineties. And they had a white British jazz band open up for him. And it was the most atrocious crap I'd ever seen. So I understand why people bag on British jazz, but Bristol also had one of Britain's biggest jazz scenes. And that's why this guy, Adrian Utley, who's an older guy, I think he was in his early thirties when they put Portishead together is in Bristol. Just a super accomplished uh, musician, also kind of had a, a punk alternative background. And the three of them come together. They make this album, Dummy, in 1994, and it's just a massive, massive hit and has this huge impact. Um, you know, definitely penetrated my consciousness, went platinum in the States. And they're another group that kind of had trouble dealing with the fame, like Beth Gibbons famously wouldn't speak to British reporters, which is probably smart. They, you know, that's where Mark Stewart gets his opportunity to talk. So very interesting stuff. And really, Portishead is where the whole acid jazz trip hop connection really ties the knot for me. Yeah, they kind of come together and and create that perfect harmony of elements. And uh, I, I think uh, we, we had this discussion kind of going back on whether or not Portishead has aged well. And I think that it has. And, and you kind of say that it, it hasn't. I Again, this is one of those things where I think maybe you need to, to sit there and you need to smoke and you need to listen to it with <laughs> headphones uh, to, to appreciate it. Because if you're just kind of listening to it in the background or maybe with the volume kind of turn, turned down low, yeah, the all of the elements don't really sync together. While if you have it nice and loud and in your face, then, then you can really appreciate the organ. You you can really appreciate the individual guitar notes that are being played and Beth Gibbons holding that note and the heartbreak that she injects right in there. You know, if you feel it, you feel it. And and I have to admit, since I said that, I've, I went back and I listened their second album, Portishead, which came out in 98. I remember being disappointed with it at the time, but I went back and I think it's a perfectly good album. I only sold about its third as much as the first album did, but good stuff. And I also had an album in 2008, which I went and listened to and wasn't bad. And so, yeah, I, some of the times when I say an album hasn't aged has aged badly, I think it's more a matter of me having aged badly. I, I, it brings back a lot of memories from the 90s that were personal and unpleasant, and my behavior was the the unpleasant part. So, you know. Anyway, my, my I, know, own... I know for me, there's an issue where uh, you know uh, the, these these innovators create something that that is that all of a sudden gets taken and redone to death and then all of a sudden it no longer sounds fresh and then your brain just kind of uh you know discards it you know it's like someone just telling you i love you i love you i love you and the the words just don't mean as much as that first i love you that's true it's true but they did totally an interesting approach because Barrow was in charge and, and producing it like a hip-hop album, but they would use the live musicians instead of samples. They used some samples, but especially on the second album, they would record pieces with the live musicians, 
Then they would print it up on dub plates mm -hmm. and Barrow would mix them and scratch them just like a hip hop album. So that's what is the special sauce with Portishead. And that's what made them innovative and so novel and had such an impact in the 90s. I think another problem for me is seeing the videos. In the 90s, for whatever reason, I wasn't seeing the videos. So I had this imagination of what they looked like. And and Beth Gibbons perfectly lovely, lovely person, but she's not what I imagined. And I don't think anything could match the mystery of of the Beth Gibbons that I had painted in my head uh, when I was just imagining what she looked like, actually seeing her scene kind of humanize it and, <clears throat> you know, demystified it. But got to move on because we've only got 10 minutes uh, to cover Tricky, and he's important. But before we do that, I guess we should play our final snippet. This is Portishead's Strangers. Portishead Strangers, a key track off of their first album, Dummy. And they named themselves after their own town. I should mention that, that Jeff Barrow came from Portishead, which is an even smaller town uh, upriver um, from Bristol. So there's apparently people from local towns in that area who refuse to listen to Portishead just because they associate it with the town they don't like. So um, Yeah, I could see, I, and I could see also like living in Portishead and being annoyed by that. Yes, absolutely. And especially because it's one of the rare instances where the band has overtaken the city as far as Google recognition. So, um, you yeah, know, good luck with your Google Maps directions. <laughs> yeah. But let's get to Tricky. Tricky had been, like you said, it was a rapper introduced to the Massive Attack and Wild Bunch crew by Mark Stewart of the pop group. And, um, had met a woman named Martina Topley Bird, who's kind of this upper crust gal. And uh, Mark Stewart introduces them, of course. They cut Aftermath, uh, and he takes it to Massive Attack, who weren't interested. So he put it out as a single on his own, and Island signs him up to a solo deal. Puts out the album Max and Quay in 1995. Um, actually recycles some of the lyrics that he used um, on the second Massive Attack album. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the attitude from Tricky that I've picked up listening to interviews and stuff like that was he wasn't too happy with the end product because, again, it's, uh, you know, when you're you're in a band with 3D, it's uh, 3D kind of is, is the guy that gets to make the choices. So he, he was saying that they, they didn't get used the way that he wanted them to use, so he just took them and used them again. And I, I love that. I love that rejection of, uh, you know, just the, the typical idea that, of course, you can't reuse lyrics in a song i mean in the dance world of course you can you've got you've got motifs and lyrics that are you reused over and over and over again over 20 years and it's so why not just take it lift it and you wrote it in the first place so you don't even have to uh, pay royalties that's right talk uh, about reclaiming i mean you know no appropriation there tricky is reclaiming his lyrics from massive attack and and tricky is the the point at which English rapping is legit. He's never really accepted as a hip hop guy. I mean, he's comes out at the same time as the whole Tupac Biggie thing. And then the, the GD era, he doesn't fit in with any of that, but he's definitely respectable. It's not like that 
feeling you had when like EMF is trying to rap in the late 80s. I mean, this was legit rapping. Everybody had to admit this this is a black man who has his own style, who's a legit rapper. It, totally. I mean, when this hit, it it was a novel thing. And I'm like I said, it's, I think it's gone on to influence all kinds of stuff, including SoundCloud rap and everything else. And so Again, though, marketed as an album artist and an alternative artist. He was marketed through those channels in the States. Didn't do as well as Portishead, but did about as well as Massive Attack's first album, at least. Um, I think by his third album, Premillennium Tension, he was going doing a couple hundred thousand units in the States. And, you know, Bjork and Nina Cherry guest vocaling on his second album, Nearly God, in 96. So, yeah, definitely carves out his own space. This is when trip-hop becomes a thing. Um, Massive Attack, Blue Lines came out. They didn't even have the trip-hop branding yet, and they kind of fell apart, and, and Acid Jazz sort of took the momentum of Massive Attack and, and applied it to their own projects. By the time that Tricky and Portishead are out there making a big impact. A Massive Attack is back with their second and third album and, and are continuing to be a big force. Now it's trip-hop is a big deal. Now people are putting out books called The Bristol Sound, and um, it becomes a thing. And that's why Reynolds included it at this point in the chapter. And he also, I think, wanted to make the point that like Jungle – these are the two descendants of hip-hop that are produced by the British that are new and novel and uniquely British, but legit hip-hop and legit making an impact on the world music scene. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think that, uh, you know, there, there, there's some discussion about old trip-hop and whether or not the guys that we established as Bristol trip-hop did it first. But, I mean, as a genre, it's just surprising that it kind of took this long for somebody to to turn it all down-tempo and get real moody and and dark and everything. It was just so much so much energy and anger in American hip-hop that, that it, there was never really that thought to kind of turn down the speed until guys like Cool Keith jumped on board. Yeah, and and you know Reynolds compares them to uh, the Wu Tang Clan, which you know was a Staten Island crew that came out in the early '90s and really turned the rap world on its head, and was one of the first underground crews of the '90s to make a big impact and kind of come out of nowhere and show that grassroots hip hop could still make a place. And there are a lot of commonalities between some of the Wu Tang stuff and trip hop. But again, there's a stridency and and um, a street ethos and a political ethos that, that Wu-Tang has that the British bands kind of didn't have. And that kind of freed them up to do some different stuff. And some really interesting stuff came out of that. And it's been a little extra work to do this. And I've cursed Simon Reynolds' names a couple of times this week as I was scrounging around looking for other places to research. Yeah, it's both a, a really big and a really small pocket. <laughs> To yeah. Work in. yeah, it's it's kind of a minor tributary of the whole dance club scene. And as we've seen, it didn't truly come out of the 90s rave scene. It truly came out of the 80s um, hip hop and sound system culture in Britain, the dub culture, and even connected to the rare groove uh, and jazz funk scenes, which I'm, I'm kind of enjoying seeing them getting a little bit of shine in the 90s. But next week, we will be back with uh, the heart of our story as uh, there's trouble in this, uh, let's see, what's he call it? War in the Jungle. 
intelligent drum and bass versus tech step. And that's the first time we've heard this word step, which I believe will be coming back in our tale quite a few times. And so that's it for this week. We've been discussing, I'm Nate Wilcox for Ryan Harkness. We've been discussing Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture. And this week we also discussed a bit of Phil Johnson's Straight Out of Bristol, Massive Attack, Portishead Tricky, and the Roots of Trip Hop. So thanks for listening. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate and Ryan will be back to discuss divisions that arose within and between the jungle and drum and bass scenes in mid-90s England. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. <laughs>